Welcome to Eurodal University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and today we are joined by a very special man, a man that stands at the intersection of macroeconomics and Italian gastronomy, the good life, sharing it on Twitter at MacroAlf. He is also a writer. Yes, Alfonso Pecatiello is at Substack at the Macro Compass, where you'll hear about what this former head of a $20 billion investment portfolio thinks about what's happening with macro insights and financial education and investment ideas. In fact, the most recent pieces are, I'm reading them out right now, the macro vigilantes are waking up. The money printer is out of order. China, to invest or not to invest? Alfonso, I just finished reading Hamlet for the first time, so this is perfect. To invest or not to invest? Yes, but which yield curve? A bond market 101 series. Alfonso, we're going to talk about collateral. But before we do, tell us what's going on, what's new in your world. You're educating people at Substack. Tell us what's happening. Emil, thanks for the great intro. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing, man? All good? So as you have heard from Emil, you can actually follow me for pizza and sourdough bread recipes on Twitter, which I suggest you do because that's by far my biggest alpha. Or alternatively, if you're looking for low quality macro material, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. Then you can follow my uh, Substack newsletter and my Twitter account. So basically, Emil uh, and Jeff, uh, four months ago, I decided to quit the rat race corporate world uh, where I was running a large portfolio before. It was a great experience, I have to be honest. A lot of learning there. But at some point, I felt that I wanted to share my knowledge and you know go through this learning journey actually with more people than only you know, a few insider investors. Um, and then I opened this newsletter. It's called the Macro Compass. I have a Twitter account at MacroAlf. It's all free, guys. So just, you know, if you want to follow my thoughts and my macro ramblings and some investment ideas as well, including the wrong ones, including the wrong ones, you'll see me saying, I stopped out. I was wrong there, which apparently on FinTweet is, is, an, is an extremely rare thing. Nobody is ever wrong. I realized that after a couple of months, it's impressive. I am very often wrong, uh, but I just share my macro thoughts with people. The key is to admit you're wrong quickly, cut your losses, have a stop loss, get out and start again. Let your winners run and cut your losers short, right? You heard the man, Emil, you heard the man. No, you're right. I agree. My win rate over the years has been 53, 54%, not 80, not 90, not 100, 53 to 54%, which means I was wrong. You know, I was right one time. I was wrong the other time. The trick was to be wrong small and right big. And then at the end of the year, when you sum up the large wins, hopefully, and the small losses, you'll end up with a plus in front of your PL. And your risk manager won't yell at you, and your boss will be relatively happy. And then you'll get a small bonus for the, the pain. No, I'm just kidding. But ultimately, it's all about having um, large wins and small losses, really, because nobody is ever right the whole time. Alfonso, I think you're going to have trouble making it in North Korea. Admitting that you have <laughs> anything less than a 100% success rate, you might as well. You're going to have to stay in Italy. I'm sorry. There, there's no, there's no uh, authoritarian future for you. I think the most difficult part, Jeff, is making it on Finn Twitter without 100% plausible <laughs> win rate because if you admit, admit you're wrong ah, it's always a tough time but hey i mean i'm just who i am a very open-minded guy or just do what, uh, what i do which is use quotation marks around certain things and then just uh, see how, how angry people get <laughs> or you could say something like 
I don't know where it's going. Maybe it's breaking up high, maybe it's going down. I don't know, but this is important. And then if it moves your way, you quote your tweet, you know, and you say, look, I told you, and otherwise you just forget about it. Or possibly you even delete the tweet. Yes, the hedge. Yes, the hedge. Yes. This is your second appearance on the show. Thank you again for joining us. A couple of months ago, we talked about your business and line of work from the inside, from the banking system. So we're not going to touch on that as much this time around. And the audience, dear audience, I'm going to put in the show notes exactly the link and the episode number so you can go and re-listen some of the base fundamentals of what it's like working in a bank, whether or not bank reserves are money, whether or not bankers are interested in holding bank reserves. But we left the audience at the end of that episode on a cliffhanger, an absolute cliffhanger. We said the words collateral, boom. And we said we were going to talk about it in this episode. And I'm sure in the comment section, everyone was pretty excited. They wanted to know. So Alfonso, have you thought about how we're going to talk about collateral or which, what were you thinking when you, when you mentioned next time we're going to talk collateral? I, uh, imagine getting lost in the weeds of repos and bank reserves and interaction between mm -hmm. collateral and how it gets used and why it's used actually out there. And Emil, I think maybe the best way to tackle this would be to look at uh, where do we stand today in terms of collateral availability to the private sector? You know, first of all, why is that important? And is it a relative thing or an absolute thing? What shall we look at here? And so, again, to bring it back to why this is relevant for large real money institutions. So I'm talking about pension funds, I'm talking about banks, I'm talking about, you know, these large financial institutions. Effectively, if you run a balance sheet and you're a large regulated entity, you are forced by regulation to own certain assets, liquid assets, right? If you're a bank or a pension fund. You will have some risks to hedge. First of all, that's what people often lack as an understanding. If you're a bank, for example, on your liability side, Emil and Jeff, you'll have some deposits. And these deposits are modeled by my former friends, risk managers, which are going to tell me, you know, of these bank deposits by people, they have an implied duration. There is a chance they're going to take those away. And we don't know when it's going to be. We're going to have some funky models telling us it's five years, the average duration of a bank deposit. We don't know. Let's assume it's five years. That means you implicitly are running an interest rate risk on your balance sheet, just to start with. The same if you're a pension fund and you have on your liability side, you'll have, you know, 30, 40 years payable pension contributions down the road, right? That's effectively you're running interest rate risk that over the next 30 to 40 years, the interest rates at which you're discounting these liabilities might move up or down. So even then you're running implicitly, again, interest rate risk. You have to have something on your asset side that is able to provide you with a risk-free return, let's say, on your asset side, but also is able to hedge your risks on the liability side. And on top of that, you have a regulator who's telling you, in any case, regardless of all these risks, you have to own some liquid assets. Right? And so these liquid assets are ultimately bonds. And bonds constitute the backbone of the collateral availability for the private sector. And so these, these, you know, these financial institutions that tend to buy these bonds to hedge risk of for regulatory reasons, and they get them on their balance sheet, but it's not over yet. They get them on their balance sheet. 
and then they, they do financial engineering operations with it. The, the easiest known to be repo transactions. And I'm going to stop here for a second because I know that Jeff is like, you know, he's trembling. He wants, he wants to say something. I can, I can feel it. Jeff, go with it. No, I love what you're doing. A great job explaining things. I love what you said earlier. I think this is a topic that we probably should visit more often is when you said, is it relative or is it absolute collateral availability? And I think we'll get to, well, let's save that for a little bit later, but that's a, a huge part of this is relative versus absolute, how things are changing. Not exactly where do we start? Is it X number of dollars of treasuries available or German bonds? But is it, we used to have this number and now it's shrinking. You know, it almost doesn't matter where you're starting from. It's the second derivative that always, it always makes the difference. So that was a great, I'm glad you pointed that out because I think that's probably one of the more misunderstood concepts too, is it's not so much how much we have, but in what direction are things turning? And it really gets tricky because as you know, Alfonso, we don't really have a whole lot of data. We don't really have a whole lot. You probably had more insight than anybody as to what's going on inside the collateral system, because for most of even today, hardly anybody knows about, you know, as you said, financial and engineering, securities, lending, securities, transformation, you know, collateral for collateral repo swaps, things like that, that, that go on and that are completely commonplace inside the, the system, but hardly anybody knows about them, nor how important they are. So we're left in the dark here trying to figure out what's going on, even though we can kind of see that there's a relationship there. That something happens, it triggers all sorts of problems some, uh, occasionally, and it leads to far greater consequences. So it's amazing that uh, we don't have more information. We don't have more people talking about this. We don't have more people understanding it. Anything that we can do to, to illuminate that sector. Alfonso, you mentioned that it's predominantly bonds, but why bonds? Why not another asset class that's safe? Gold, for example. I'm thinking perhaps because it's not paying any interest to match the liabilities. So I'm thinking with pension withdrawals, maybe you need some sort of interest to keep offsetting that liability. Okay, so not a metal, but is there another capital market instrument? Currencies, I guess they don't pay any interest, but maybe equities. Are there safe equities like utilities? Or is it no, it's bonds because this capital market is a promise that we will pay interest and principal versus even utilities with low volatility, like utility is famous, Con Edison, I don't know. But that's not a promise to pay dividends. Why bonds? So there are two reasons, I would say. The first stands from the fact that bonds have this unique characteristic of not only being a very deep market with an underlying repo, repurchase agreement market that makes it able to reuse the same collateral over and over and over again on different sides of the balance sheet. So there are entities, Emil, that are interested in repoing out bonds and entities that are interested in reverse repoing. So there are always two liquidity providers in this repo market, and we can talk about it later. How does this work and who's one entity, who's the other one? The second one, I think, really stands behind the monetary mechanics of our system. So our monetary system is a fully credit-based and euro-dollar-based system, right? So those are two somehow interconnected, but also different systems. 
So effectively, since 1971, our system is our monetary system is fully elastic. There is credit expansion. It's you know we can expand and contract credit basically according to what commercial banks want to do at any point in time. Not central banks, but commercial banks have this you know uh, ability to be able to do that, and the governments are also able to accommodate um, transferring net wealth to the private sector via issuing deficits. It's, it's an accounting identity that government deficits, uh, changes in government deficits, I should say, are equivalent to changes in um, net assets owned by the private sector. This is funded via bonds, basically, which are just a, an accounting mechanism, effectively, to make sure that balance sheets basically match at the end of the, of the, uh, of the day. And because of this accounting mechanics that makes the government issue bonds when they want to transfer resources to the private sector, we effectively have bonds underpinning a lot of this credit creation mechanism out there. Although the most important thing being entities outside, sitting outside the control of the domestic jurisdiction regulator being, for example, Federal Reserve in America, still able to expand the dollar usable dollar supply out there. And so these guys are, you know, this is basically the backbone of the euro dollar system where a European bank can issue a dollar loan, which is a very interesting thing, which means, you know, the European bank is able to expand and contract the dollar supply without being directly regulated by the Fed. It's a very cool thing. And that's how it works. Now, obviously, these loans that are extended by these banks need to be backed by some sort of collateral. And coming back to what I said before, when the private sector you know, is looking for new resources or the government decides to expand new resources towards the private sector, they go into deficit spending. And the more deficit spending they do, the more issuance of new collateral they need to do at the end of the day. This collateral gets then reused all over again by, by the private sector and financial institutions. And there is a lot of financial engineering going on. And so it's a, a necessity to use this um, government issue somehow consider risk-free collateral as the backbone for these transactions. And second, because of the interest rate duration intensive nature of this bond market, it also serves as a natural hedge for this interest rate risk on the liability side of this institution. Remember the, the duration of a bank deposit, the duration of your pension liabilities you'll have to pay off, they also, bonds also naturally serve as a hedge on the asset side. And on top of it, regulators, again, the same guys that are ultimately in the policymaking seat, trying to influence how the system works, basically overlay regulation and rules over financial institutions. We discussed the other time about the HQLA and the LCR regulation, which basically forces European and American bank to own 15% of their balance sheet in bonds. 15% of the commercial bank aggregate balance sheet is huge, it's massive. And therefore, there is a regulation overlay. There is a, an inherent reason why bonds are used as an interest rate hedge. And then there is the third thing, which is ultimately bonds are considered to be, uh, or at least government bonds, by the very nature of the system, the collateral of choice. Long answer. There, I forgot to answer one part of it, which is <laughs> equities. They are considered under certain circumstances and utilities. It's fun that you mentioned them because they mostly qualify as an equity sector for, um, according to regulators, as a liquid asset. 
There are a lot of rules there, Emil, before an equity or, or, or stock can qualify as a, a regulatory liquid asset for a bank. It's very hard. Um, and also the depth of the repo market in certain equity sectors is not as large as the depth of, of a treasury repo market. It's interesting you said, Alfonso, the one part that there's, you know, going back to repo, there's essentially two liquidity providers. And I think that's really the, the kind of the whole nuts and bolts of the case here. There's two sources of liquidity there where most people are led to believe there's only one. And we're supposed to only focus on the cash side or if you really want to get into the narrow QE era case, bank reserves are the only thing we should focus on. And that's that's, you know understandable to a point. But when you really stop and take a look at the collateralized part of the system, as you just put it, you realize that the collateral itself, because it's reused, because it's actually backing most of the financial engineering that's out out there, it is its own type of currency. It's a collateral is almost like a currency system in and of itself. And so it's almost like a binary liquid where, you know, you have one thing or the other thing and they don't work unless they come into contact with each other. The same for these funding markets where you can have a lot of cash, but you still run into trouble if you don't have a lot of collateral. And if you have a lot of collateral, you can run into a lot of trouble if you don't have cash. And so a hell of a lot of the last the history of the last, you know, 40 years, let's say, is about matching these two liquidity parts and putting them together in some sort of efficient and elegant fashion, which in an ideal sense, that's kind of what it seemed like was happening in the pre-crisis era, but probably wasn't because of, you know, a lot of stupidity, a lot of insanity. And a lot of it is, too, is, as you said, governments are given this privilege in this, you know, this deep currency liquidity sense, which they've clearly taken advantage of. But, you know, nobody ever questions, is this really a good way of doing things? Are governments really risk-free? And I think even that term itself is misunderstood because we're not really talking about credit risk here so much as we are the markets behind them. And simply because government bond markets had developed before, long before, you know, robust cor- uh, private corporate markets or even, you know, equity markets to the same extent, you know, these government bonds uh, have been given a place of privilege that we just don't question. Nobody questions it, whether this is actually a good idea. And it's really, again, Liquidity providers means it's not just cash, it's not bank reserves, it's all of these things combining together and all in these very, very complicated process. Yes, Jeff, I mean, you're totally right. Shall we try and shed some light on who and how this collateral gets rehypothecated, which is the repo market? Yes. Yeah, I think, you know, again, people need to know this. They need to know that it happens and they need to know how it happens so that you can at least get a, a mental map in your mind or a good conception of thinking about how these, you know, where are the potential breakdowns and how do we see them? How do we figure them out? So let's say, let's look at a treasury market and see who wants to repo treasuries and who wants to reverse repo a treasury to make sure we have a bid and an ask and a market there in the repo market. So let's say, who are the treasury rich accounts? Who are the accounts that own a lot of collateral on their balance sheet? let's say banks, because we discussed about their need to hedge interest rate risk. And we discussed about the regulatory overlay. They're basically forced to own liquid assets. A reminder, liquid assets are either bank reserves or bonds and maybe some equities that are assumed to be regulatory liquid by the regulator. And those are mostly government bonds and some highly rated corporate bonds 
and even a smaller slice of the equity market. So, so let's make it simple and say those are bonds and bank reserves. Let's say JP Morgan has, has a balance sheet of 100 billion and is basically forced by the regulator to own 15 billion of liquid assets. JP Morgan is looking at owning either reserves or US treasuries, right? And they have some, remember, some liabilities on the other hand that have an interest rate risk. So they will need to hedge some of this interest rate risk, right? They will do some loans, but you know, they might use some bonds as well to hedge some of this risk. And so they look at bank reserves and they mostly yield nothing or yield Fed funds, right? To be uh, precise. And they don't bear any interest rate risk. They don't bear any credit risk and they just yield you basically interest on excess reserves. And that's it. And then they look at bonds. And bonds have a couple of functions for JP Morgan. They provide interest rate risk and they generally provide with an interest rate which is above the interest on excess reserves, even when hedged for the interest rate risk. So assuming JP Morgan doesn't really want the interest rate risk exposure because they don't need it, there is a thing called swap spreads to measure how much the bonds are yielding above or below the term structure of the federal funds rate. So basically, this assumption that JP Morgan would roll over bank reserves at the Fed, how much will they get for doing this for 10 years? Or how much yield will they get in buying a 10-year treasury? If you compare the two, there is this thing called swap spread that is basically the difference between these two returns that generally will be positive, which means that bond yields tend to be higher than parking cash at the Federal uh, Reserve for a while. Cash, I should say bank reserves at the Federal Reserve for a while. Okay, so there are a couple of incentives and JP Morgan would just say, all right, so let's buy some bonds here. So they buy some bonds, they have them on the balance sheet. And at some point they will be like, okay, so I own all this collateral and it seems there are some guys out there that are really interested in getting some of this collateral. Lend to them. So how can I do this? I can do a repo transaction. Okay, that's interesting. So they will go and they will expand their balance sheet effectively. They will go and they will lend their treasuries to whom? Who's interested on the other side in having these treasuries in the first place? Now, I think one answer might be very surprising, and that is pension funds and so, or, or asset managers for this sake. Why is that the case? People always assume that every institution out there can park cash to the Federal Reserve. Well, not everybody can. Not everybody has an account at the Federal Reserve. If you don't have an account at the Federal Reserve, Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you have some form of overnight liquidity, you'll have to park it at a commercial bank. And a commercial bank right. deposit is not a risk-free instrument. It's an unsecured overnight deposit that bears credit risk. Uninsured. That bears credit risk, for which you're not rewarded yep. for. And so the pension fund will be like, all right, so I own some of these bank deposits. Actually, I don't really like the prospect here because I don't get rewarded for the credit risk that JP Morgan is going to go belly up. Shall I do some reverse repo? Shall I lend some of these bank deposits away in exchange for some, for some of this collateral? So at least my deposit is collateralized with something here. You can see what's going on. The collateral is being used by the bank and then uses collateral in the reverse repo transaction against an asset manager that owns in the first place unsecured bank deposits. They don't like that. They'd rather have a reverse repo where they lend back this deposit and they get a collateral back in their deposit. And that's the treasury. So in case JP Morgan would default, then at least they have some valuable collateral to make themse themselves worth for it. 
right? And so that is one example under which we used one bond purchased in the first place by JP Morgan. And we have already used it once back and forth in a repo and reverse repo transaction. The other big players in this market are hedge funds, obviously, because the repo market allows to basically use a large amount of leverage against a very small single unit of collateral underlying the transaction. And why is that the case? Because treasuries are deep. They are a very large and liquid market, which means that only with a small margin, you're able to lever up your position on treasuries by a large extent. And hedge funds do exactly that to go and chase a bunch of basis trades, a bunch of swap spread trades, a bunch of derivative trades that move very little. But if you apply large leverage to a position that moves very little, you're able to achieve relatively high returns against the risk you're taking. Let's specify that a little bit more just so people understand what you're talking about. When you talk about uh, treasury and repo, what you're saying is that it have such a low yeah. haircut, essentially, let's say 1%. Essentially, that 1% is what the equity that you put in. So if you're a hedge fund, you have, say, a, a billion dollars, a, a hedge fund with a billion dollars, that's probably, too much. let's say, 100 million. You have a hedge fund with 100 million, you put up the 100 million, you, you borrow a treasury from somebody, a billion dollars worth of treasury. The haircut's 1%, which means essentially you've got $100 million of your own money leveraged up to a billion dollars, or, or actually my math's off, <laughs> $10 billion, $10 billion a portfolio that is essentially risk-free so long as you can maintain ownership or maintain use of the treasury. So you put in $100 million of your own money, you repo that out, you get a 1% haircut, and all of a sudden you've got a $10 billion treasury portfolio which you can then use to create all sorts of, as you said, Alfonso, very weird and exotic transactions and trades, um, whether it's basis trades or whatever else that you, you've, you've decided to, whatever market you want to arbitrage or go after. So it's an enormous amount of built-in leverage that everybody's, you know, in these days, it's basically the only leverage that's left. Now, that's all very true. And I want to uh, build on top of this argument you're making, Jeff. The leverage the hedge fund is using in this transaction, it's all nice and dandy as long as it can be refinanced at the same repo rates or at less expensive repo rates. Because most of these trades these guys are putting on are based on the assumption that repo levels will remain contained so that they can arbitrage a very small um, discrepancy in some of these derivatives market by using a large leverage and financing it relatively cheap in the repo market, and they can achieve large returns. Now, what happens if the availability of this collateral becomes scarce all of a sudden, and the repo rates, and then they have a big problem, and the repo (laughs) rates start to become much more expensive, the magnitude of these on their so-called carry trades, where basically you finance these trades in the repo market on a highly leveraged fashion, becomes very punitive. Now, when the when do we very quickly too, especially the gamma's high? I mean, yeah, it, it's it's amazing how fast these things change. And when do these repo rates actually become unanchored? Now, we said that before, and the answer, the short answer to that is when there is a large imbalance between the amount of collateral available at any time for the private sector and the amount of quote unquote liquidity that the private sector owns. So. Let's try to be a bit more specific about that. Jeff, you many times have uh, laughed about the concept of um, 
the abundant level of reserves that the system can operate with. You hear Powell the whole time. He goes on the screens and he says, well, you know, we are going to do QT, right? Now, we tried in 2018. We're going to try again now. And this QT works. You ask them, so, so, okay, quantitative tightening. It means you know exactly what quantity of bank reserves can take away from the system, and then everything's going to work anyway. I mean, it's quantitative tightening, for fuck's sake. So you, you need to know, right? You're doing this. And then so people go and ask him. So it's science. It's determined by a formula. How could you argue? So, so it's cool because <laughs> people show up and say, okay, Jay Powell, um, how much QT are you going to do? Well, until an abundant level of reserves in the system is held, and then we're going to stop there. Yeah, but what's this amount? How many reserves does the system need to function against the collateral that is available? There is no answer to that question. Am I right? Cool. Nope. It's a it's fundamentally flawed question, too, because, again, it, it reprioritizes things in the wrong direction. But that's essentially the argument you have to take into its extreme level or take into its its natural natural conclusion. There is no natural conclusion. They're basically saying we're going to try to, to reduce bank reserves until something tells us we're doing it wrong. <laughs> exactly. It's basically what happened, what happened in 2019. Right. So the first thing I would like the audience to understand is that if you want to get an understanding whether the repo market is going under stress, you shouldn't look at outright repo levels. So today, a general collateral transaction on a US treasury, which means whatever sort of liquid treasury you're going to lend me, I'm going to give you a repo rate for that. It's around about 0.29%, 0.29%. And federal funds rate have just been raised by 25 basis points for the first time. And that's the point. You should look at repo rates against Fed funds rate or, uh, let's say, in general, risk-free rate offered by the Fed. So interest on excess reserves should be effectively the, the, your benchmark here. Why is that the case? If repo levels are very close to this bank reserves remuneration level, let's say, then generally it means that the amount of reserves that are there in the system are rewarded in a very close way to how collateral is rewarded in a repo transaction, which is a symptom that you know, there are actually abundant reserves because you can just exchange them. You, you send reserves away, you get collateral back, et cetera, et cetera. So the system somehow works, the plumbing works. The, the imbalance between collateral and reserves is not large enough to de-anchor repo levels against the interest rate you get on bank reserves if you're a commercial bank. All right. So in 2019, all seemed okay during this QT and, and, and structural systematic reduction of bank reserves until repo levels start to deviate pretty aggressively from the rate on bank reserves. At some point, basically, we had the rate of bank reserves being round about zero or, or declining quickly towards zero and repo rates shoot to 3%. Now you're going to say, well, off, but you know, it's like 300 basis point between repo levels and reserves. What's the problem? The problem is that the leverage that the repo market is able to generate, as Jeff discussed before, because the very small haircut you need to put against treasuries when you do this repo transaction is so large. We're talking 10 times, 20 times. Some of these hedge funds are levered 20 times on this treasury transaction. Try to make a 300 basis point increase in borrowing cost on a 20 times levered up balance sheet, and you see what happens. You see what happens. Now, what happened? Yeah, you're not in business tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. You're out of business tomorrow. Now, what we are doing here is we are trying to attempt at the same thing. 
all over again. We are going to do quantitative tightening, which mechanically means that the Federal Reserve is not going to reinvest some of the rollovers on their balance sheet. You know, if, if there is a treasury maturing, they're not going to buy another treasury again. And when they don't do that, the balance sheet of the Fed shrinks, both from the asset side, that's easy to understand because your treasury has matured. You don't reinvest it, so you have a smaller portfolio, right? That's easy to understand. What people are often missing is that the liability side of the Federal Reserve balance sheet is going to shrink as well. And what's that? It's bank reserves. And as bank reserves shrink, the liability side of the Federal Reserve is reflected in the asset side of the commercial banking system. Commercial banking system is also going to have less reserves at disposal, which coming back again to the fact that commercial banks are large buyers of this collateral because they need it for interest rate hedging. They are regulatory forced to do that. Remember, they have a choice between bank reserves and collateral. If they have less bank reserves because the Federal Reserve is basically shrinking their balance sheet, their appetite to embark in more collateral and lending more collateral away generally tends to be less strong than before. And so there is a delicate balance between the availability of collateral and the availability of bank deposits and reserves that play a role in, in repo and reverse repo. And when this delicate balance breaks, you have a large problem because many financial institutions have levered up hedge funds and then other players as well on the very exact assumption that these a linear relationship will never break down. They will always be able to run large leverage trades at a very low cost. When it breaks, it's a big problem. And that's something you can't really model, right, Alfonso? That's really difficult to say. You know, like you said, you almost have to assume it's a linear relationship just because you have to assume it's a linear. There's no other, there's no other model out there because it's not an economic factor. It's a, basically a policy factor, which just means, as you said before, the Fed's just going to do what it's going to do. We don't really know what it's going to do. They advertise what they're going to do, but they're only going to do it until something starts to go wrong, which is, I'm trying to think, if you're a commercial bank, you're a risk manager, you're trying to put that into a quantitative model, you, you just can't. There's no way to absolutely do that. So you're, you're basically telling banks out there who have gotten very comfortable doing what you just said, repoing, arbitraging, going back and forth between collateral. You don't, maybe sometimes you don't mind a commercial bank deposit, all the times you do. You know, these various menu options for liquidity, liability management, they've been very comfortable in having all of these options. And all of a sudden you introduce this policy uncertainty, especially as it relates to collateral availability, reuse, repledging and all these other things. And as you said, it's, it becomes almost fragile at that point because you never know when the commercial banking system is just going to say, all right, let's just take a step back here and reassess because as things are a little bit less than ideal as they used to be, I'm not going to rent out the collateral I was yesterday because I'm a little bit more uncertain about today. Yes. And that has um, second round effects as well on many other markets out oh, there. Huge. Extrapolating a linear relationship between the imbalance between bank reserves and collateral and repo levels to try and understand when, does th when do things break down actually, right? So when I was in my previous role, um, I was in Europe and in Europe, we basically have a system under which the European Central Bank measures excess liquidity. It's a very fun thing. So they have a basically a threshold 
above which they define any amount of bank reserves as excess liquidity. So the, the cool thing is that if you regress this amount of excess bank reserves as defined by the ECB into the system, and how repo rates trade against the ECB deposit trade, so a risk-free a way to place your bank reserves, you actually obtain, obtain great results. It's pretty much a linear relationship and you can just say, okay, if excess reserves are above 1 trillion, then I expect repo rates to be very tight. And the fun thing is that repo levels in Europe are lower in most cases than the ECB deposit rate. So let's discuss about that for a second. If in Europe you own you have the luxury to own some German government bonds, some Dutch government bonds, <laughs> some AAA rated collateral in Europe. If you have the luxury to own that and you want to repo some of this collateral away, and when you repo that away, you obtain some form of cash, because that's the, you know, there is a reverse repo part in this transaction as well, which is lending you a form of cash, bank deposits, bank reserves, whatever they are, and you park those back at the central bank. So you're literally just, just lending your collateral away for cash, you actually will make money. So let's talk numbers. A German government bond today can be repoed at round about negative 75 basis point. You repo it. Is it that much? Yes. And you get cash back wow. or a form of cash back. And if you have access at the central right. bank, you will be able to park this cash at negative 50 basis point, which means you just literally made 25 basis point for the luxury of owning a scarce amount of collateral. And that's what I was pointing out before, Jeff. People need to start looking at the imbalance between the amount of collateral available to the private sector and the amount of reserves in the system. And that's a fundamental difference too, right, Alfonso? Because in, in Europe, the Germans aren't like the American. The, the American government is <laughs> is gone insane, borrowed more funds than we can ever really imagine, whereas the German government actually has maintained its fiscal sanity throughout all this. But the problem with that, at least in terms of the monetary plumbing, is that there are not nearly as much German or Dutch bonds no. available as there are U.S. treasuries. And so people ask that question all the time. Why are, you know, before the, the, the last couple of months, why are German debt always so negative? You know, why are they always yielding negative amounts? And that's really the reason why, as you said, there's a scarcity element to the point where owning a German or Dutch bond is a luxury because it has such an exorbitant premium, a liquidity premium that you can charge in the collateral marketplace. The amount of AAA collateral, liquid AAA collateral available in the Eurozone, denominated in Euro as percentage of the Euro area GDP is something like low uh, double digit percentage and it's extremely low compared to the amount of AAA collateral liquid collateral available in the US as percentage of GDP. That is simply the result of the fiscal largesse of the United States which is obviously a requirement of our monetary system based on dollars where the US is responsible to ex try and export some of these dollars away to make the system work somehow, then the euro dollar does the rest, right? But the US as the global reserve currency issuer is sort of incentivized to make use of this system, while the Germans, well, they are less incentivized to make use of this system. The last time I ran the numbers was last year. And if I look at the amount of German government bonds that are not locked on static balance sheets, which means 
you know, you are a Korean reserve manager. You do all these experts, you get back some euros, you need to do something with these euros. You're going to buy some scarce collateral. You want some valuable things, right? Instead of these euros, you're going to buy some German government bonds. But once you buy those, those are stuck there. You are a monetary institution. You're not going to embark in many of these repo transactions. If I exclude the amount of German government bonds held in sticky accounts, and I look at the free float, the so-called free float, so the amount of German government bonds being transacted on a daily basis, so the collateral which is getting around in the system, it is 6 to 10% of the overall outstanding amount of German government bonds. They are all locked away in balance sheets. So it's, it's essentially a fraction of a fraction of the overall system. It's just a tiny amount. The cool thing is that if you're a pension fund in Europe, you, ho- you own these bank deposits, you know, uh, you, you're going to park them back in the European bank. You run overnight credit risk. You don't want that. You're going to do reverse repos. What is the collateral you're going to demand when you lend your bank deposit in exchange for this collateral? Well, you're going to demand some AAA collateral, of course. If you can, why not? Once again, you're going to be wanting to get some German government bonds. So there is this large imbalance, which is reflected in repo rates in Europe, which are deeply, deeply, deeply negative. If you model this linear relationship, it works until it doesn't work anymore. Would it be, I don't believe that, I know the Italian bond market is bigger than the German bond market. I'm going off of memory now. Is the French, the French oats, are they larger than the German one as well? much larger. If so, oh, perfect. I think the German one is sixth overall by going off of memory. Uh, so the French and Italian, I know the risk manager would say, <laughs> that's not the same sort of AAA mm-hmm. as German AAA, but is it possible? Would, what if the authorities at the European Central Bank pronounced them AAA and said they are, for regulatory purposes, they're as good as everything? Would that release and make available some more collateral the European system using the Italian and French debt? It's a great question. And this is exactly what the European Central Bank has tried and achieved during the pandemic crisis by making Greek government bond eligible for collateral operation at the Central Bank. So you can post some of these bonds at the Central Bank and get some funds away from the ECB too. But obviously, if you had some Greek government bond, they were below investment grade. They were not eligible for these operations. But in order to make sure that even some Greek collateral was used, ultimately, they they changed the rules for a bit. Now, the key is credit rating agencies here. And this might look fun to you, Emil, because if you're an investor, you should just look at your own assessment of credit risk, your own assessment of the quality of the collateral you're choosing to get lent in exchange for your bank deposits, right? Or your bank reserves. Ultimately, most of these risk departments outsource their service to risk agencies. Uh, credit risk agencies, right? And so France is rated double A. It's not triple A, it's double A. Italy, it's triple B. So on the scorecards, it basically will look like if you use a French government bond as collateral, you need to demand some haircuts for doing that because it's not triple A. Even worse, some Northern European pension funds or asset managers simply in their CSA agreement, so these are some some collateral agreement that these large institutions have with banks, mostly with banks, they will say, look, guys, we will exchange collateral the whole time. We'll lend you bond, we'll lend you bank deposits, we'll, you'll lend us bonds. Let's make an agreement. Okay, so what do we consider being decent collateral? 
they will simply exclude anything which is not AAA rated to start with, which is a mandate risk management limitation, basically, that makes inherently, let's say, the AAA assets inherently more valuable. When it comes to the risk assessment, would you be want to use some French government bonds, for example, as collateral? Yes, probably yes. And things are opening up a bit, but there is this fragmentation in Europe and this conception that hasn't really gone away even after 20 years of the Euro experiment, under which we all live under one umbrella, but you know, it's not really one umbrella at the end of the day. So if I can get my hands on a AAA collateral, I would rather prefer that. Now, Europe is trying to solve the system by issuing bonds straight away from the European Union balance sheet. So this is the first European bond. Somehow attempt at a fiscal union-ish issuance-driven, let's say, bond policy for the first time in uh, basically since Europe was uh, put together. But the resistance there from Northern European countries to try unify and make one fiscal union is still relatively large. I think that, you know, the difference between Europe and the United States and the collateral availability still, uh, I think it illustrates how the system is able during sort of benign conditions to deal with all of these different factors. For example, there's lots of U.S. treasuries in, in the United States. And so we have very narrow spreads, ne- very narrow repo rate spreads. In Europe, as you're saying, German, Dutch bonds are highly prioritized. They stand atop the pyramid. There's not many of them. But yet the European repo system and collateralized marketplace has learned to deal with it. It's learned to say, okay, we need we need to adjust all of these, the scarcity by the repo price or the repo rate price and the spread there. So it's not so much the absolute levels of all of these different, you know, collateral availability. It's getting into how things evolve during time and how things change. As you said, all of a sudden, you know, maybe just spit, I mean, just as a hypothetical example, European commercial banks are starting to use more French bonds as collateral, but then something happens in France. Next thing you know, French bonds, which were double A, maybe they get threatened to be downgraded to single A. The people were all, you know, commercial banks were already sort of, they were sort of skeptical about them to begin with. It's suddenly you have, because balance sheets aren't expanding, because banks are constrained, because they're always seeking out these liquidity arbitrage opportunities and under regulatory strains and everything else, there isn't a whole lot of tolerance to absorb small changes to these things. And as you said, you were trying to work out with the previous example of the Fed's quantitative tightening. A small change in the availability of reserves or the use of reserves forces the system to adjust in ways maybe it doesn't want to, maybe it isn't ready for. And so I think that's the overall, especially over the, you know, you look at the treasury market, the T-bill market over the last month, it's the ability, fragility, the system cannot absorb even small changes. And one of the reasons why you can't model that is because a small change leads to much bigger consequences when it's all so kind of put together and without a lot of margin, with, a lot of, with, not, with not a lot of tolerances in it. And I think that's the, really the major point here is that one of the reasons, it, at least it seemed to work real well pre-crisis era, was because there was tolerances, there was redundancies, dealers could yes. expand their balance sheets when they needed to, whereas nowadays, maybe theoretically they can, but they sure as hell don't seem to want to. The system learns to deal with the way it is today, but really does not want to change because there's really no absorption, no ability to absorb changes. Great point on the dealer's ability to lever up. 
and willingness to do so. I shared on Twitter chart the last day that shows the, um, let me try and phrase this the right way, the amount of repos uh, primary dealers in the US are engaging in as percentage of the total amount of tradable treasuries outstanding. So, you know, if, if the treasury pool becomes larger, you should also have theoretically more ability and willingness to engage in more repo transaction. There is more collateral out there, right? So why would you want to not lend them out? Well, this line is percentage. So the availability and the willingness to repo out from dealers has been trending down in a straight line since the great financial crisis. So we are now basically touching upon the last point that influences repo levels and the use of collateral, which is regulation. And so if the regulator would make balance sheet expansion more expensive for dealers and for commercial banks with, re with changes in regulation, banks would embark in much less uh, balance sheet expansion and repos, which would make less collateral available to the system, which would change the equilibrium all over again. One small example, 2021, again in Europe, the European Central Bank decides to exempt bank reserves at ECB from the calculation of the leverage ratio, which literally means that if you were a bank in Europe in 2021 and you were somehow constrained from a leverage ratio perspective, so your expansion of balance sheet basically against your total assets or, or your capital, let's say you were already too leveraged according to this metric. So if you wanted to embark in a repo transaction, you lent a bond that you had on your balance sheet, you received some more bank reserves or bank deposits, your balance sheet expanded further, and you were maybe constrained from that perspective, right? You, you thought twice before doing that. The central bank came and said, ah, 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 take it easy, it's going to be fine. For a year or two years, we're going to not count your bank reserves anymore in the leverage ratio calculation, which basically meant, oh, I've got a bunch of bonds here. I couldn't repo out before, or I was you know, concerned about it. Now, if I repo them out and I get some bank reserves, and I park these bank reserves at the central bank, they don't count anymore in the leverage ratio calculation. So I'm expanding my balance sheet and the regulators aren't making me pay for that. They are penalizing me from a, a regulatory perspective. Of course, it, that changed the equilibrium in the collateral and bank reserves um, availability in the system, not necessarily because of the two quantities changing, but merely because of regulation changing. That's how important it is. Afonso? The big topic in macroeconomics on Twitter recently has been Zoltan Pozar's Bretton Woods mm -hmm. 3. And I'm going to try to do a fair shorthand version of it because it seems to be concerned with collateral in U.S. treasuries and the value of those treasuries over time. He's not writing that there's going to be a sea change, but that gradually we're moving towards a world whereby treasuries as reserves, as collateral, are less valued, less necessary. And that we're moving towards a world whereby commodities are more prized, oil, gold, metals of some sort. And what is that doesn't sound that doesn't comport with the discussion we've been having. Maybe I've missed it. Maybe it's gone over my head, but it seems like those assets would be much too volatile and unwelcome, both from the risk manager's point of view and from regulators. <laughs> it's harder even, to settle physical commodities. Yeah, well, not even addressing that part. It's just balance sheet management. It would seem to be more problematic Wrong than direction. the friendly 
old U.S. Treasury. Maybe I've misunderstood what you've said or what he's written. Or am I on the right path? Zoltan is basically advocating for a commodity standard, let's say, rather than a gold standard, effectively having a bunch of commodities being the backbone of the monetary system at the end of the day, right? So being the ultimate scarce asset that you use as the underlying for your financial engineering. Now, there are a couple of problems with that. The first is that, as Jeff said, a physical commodity, so, so let's say to be a purist in this theory, you shouldn't assume that the oil contract or the copper contract will be the underlying asset you will be using as your reference to then build over and do financial engineering because that defies the purpose. It should be physical oil, it should be physical copper, it should be physical commodities. Now, obviously, if that is the ultimate underlying asset, it's non-transferability and it's storage costs and all of that will make it things very, very inconvenient. The reason why we use treasuries is that, I know this is a hard truth to say, but our monetary system is a digital ledger system where effectively we can transact and transfer and move collateral away at with keystrokes. That's 97% of I'm going to do this money supply in the system. I hate uh, monetarist definitions, but of things we, the various forms of money we deal with are digital. And the Fed, all of what the Federal Reserve is doing, basically all of it, it's moving keystrokes on a digital ledger system. Bank, commercial banks are also basically doing that. Now, if you want to move a highly technological, highly digitalized monetary system into a commodity-based system, and you can't do that with oil contracts. If you want to be a purist, you have to do it with barrel of oils that you'll need to move around. It's a relatively inconvenient system. I mean, it might, we might going to move there, but it is relatively inconvenient. Yeah. It's ridiculous and it's impossible because I don't think even Zoltan has, it doesn't seem to have thought too, too much about how you would e- actually, how you would physically settle trillions of dollars of transactions a day in physical commodity market. How would you actually do? Does anybody even know how to settle an oil contract right now? You have to call up. I mean, it's not like you can call up a central exchange and say, oh, I need to settle, you know, 100 million barrels of oil. You have to call all of these dealers individually to see if you can get it. Now, maybe eventually we could standardize and, and maybe create a central oil repository, a clearinghouse of physical commodity. I don't think it's even physically possible, but even assuming you could, you know, there's, as you said, Alfonso, there's a reason why the financial system went to an all digital architecture beginning back in the 1930s with telex machines, because we don't want these monetary frictions to get in the way of commercial advancement, right? Because if it's very difficult for you and I to transact in a monetary way, whereas I want to buy goods from you, you want to, you want to get paid for those goods. You want to send me those goods. I want them as soon as I as soon as I can get my hands on them. I don't want to have to wait until I ship half a tanker or you know three eighths of a tanker of oil over to somebody where you say it's now in my possession. Well, what does it mean? It's in your possession. So I have to sh- I have to find a tanker. I have to find a third of a tanker, fill it with oil, and then it has to ship around the world to where whatever location you say is good enough for our settlement process. And then the transaction gets released. 
a commodity-based standard for for actual settlement transactions. I don't think we're, I mean, not only do we not want to go back in that direction because it would be so cumbersome and inefficient, what is the benefit of it? What is really the benefit of it other than the fact that we don't like U.S. Treasuries? <laughs> yes. So the benefit of it would be to change the um, geopolitical equilibrium in favor of who owns the scar. Yeah, it's, it's not an economic consideration. It's a political consideration. It's a geopolitical change, right? You're going to be saying commodities from now onwards yes. will play a disproportionately larger role in global trades and in the backbone of our system that people who own and produce these commodities are going to be benefiting from effectively having the global reserve um, currency benefit, right? Instead of a currency, it's a basket of commodities. The more you produce, the more you're going to be at the epicenter of the system. So it's basically a geopolitical shift, but from a monetary perspective, a settlement perspective, a financialization perspective, this is not a step forward. This is a major step back compared to where it's 10 steps back. It's, it's going back into the 18th century. Pretty much. So again, ultimately, it's market forces who are going to decide whether a basket of commodities is much more valuable as a collateral uh, from the system that treasuries are. That's it. That's it right there. If you don't like the treasuries, you don't like the American government, you don't like their policies, you don't like the fact that they threaten SWIFT and all these other things, then don't go to commodities. Find some other collateralized instrument that can compete with U.S. Treasuries, whether it be digital currencies or some other format that com- that actually competes as a somewhat of a realistic substitute for the system we have now. Don't just say, "Well, the value of commodities are going to go up," without thinking about the real architecture behind the real logistics behind all that, the real settlement money processes behind it. I tend to agree on the fact, Jeff, that if there is a shift to be made towards a system which choose another sort of collateral in conjunction with uh, treasuries or euro government bonds as we use today, there is a higher likelihood that digital assets are going to play a role in that transaction than physical commodities are just for the transferability issues, for the storage issues, for the settlement issues. I mean, a physical commodity, it's really a, a backdated way uh, or a backdated tool to use as the backbone of our system, to be honest. So, well, think about it this way: we have a drunk captain in Alaska who runs his, his super tanker aground and leaks all his oil. We just had a deflationary money event. I mean, <laughs> that's really. You look at the sinking of the SS. What is it? The SS United States in 1857 that effectively contracted the U.S. money supply and put it into a depression that may have triggered the U.S. Civil yeah. War because we lost physical commodities. I mean, the last time a physical commodity was used as the backbone for our system was basically in the gold standard before 1971, one can say, where elastic credit was still available, but wasn't used as much and as aggressively because ultimately you could convert your newly created dollars into gold at a fixed price. And obviously there was, there was some attention around how many you know, gold bullions did we have and how many dollars did we have. So obviously at some point the system doesn't work anymore. And the convertibility doesn't work anymore. But gold is much less prone than a basket of commodities to uh, mistakes and to settlement issues. It is still prone to these problems, but a bit less than uh, transferring copper from a place to another. Plus, you don't use it. Yeah. I mean, think about it that way. If we're using oil or copper as a commodity standard and we we use oil and copper yes. <laughs> in economic life. It would be like if we were burning Federal Reserve notes for heat. So I think one point Zoltan is bringing across, which is right, 
is that people have perhaps underestimated the fact that um, some jurisdictions were highly dependent on energy imports and commodity imports from maybe one source only. So let's say Europe was highly dependent on Russian commodities until a few months ago, and now they realized, oh my God, we were 80% dependent on Russian gas. That doesn't work because our commodity price in euro now, as euros are depreciating and commodity prices are going up, is basically the price we are paying for this um, you know, over-dependence on Russian gas and Russian energy in general. And so perhaps we have underestimated that and we have looked at Russia's percentage of GDP, let's say, rather than Russia's percentage of global commodity exports. And so, yeah, that might have been a miscalculation. I think that is actually a fair point. It's less of a fair point to assume we're moving towards a physical commodity-backed monetary system for the reasons we just discussed. Alfonso, I'm mindful of your time. We've been talking for one hour. It's wonderful. But is there a topic or a point that you need to bring up now? Or Jeff, is there a question that you must ask Alfonso now? Otherwise, we could uh, table it for, uh, for episode three, part three. One thing I'd like to say is I see that many people out there are getting around with sensationalistic takes all over the place. And I want to praise you guys for doing this very good educational work at the Eurodollar University. It's just to present facts and, you know, hard researched pieces around and, and information being shared with the audience. It's very important to have a balanced take. And I know that people don't like treasuries. Yes, I can understand that. That's fine by me, but it doesn't mean we should think and communicate with our egos, but we should try and you know, bring around well thought research and, you know, explain how the monetary system works without being driven by sensationalistic takes on what's going to change and the sky's going to fall tomorrow, et cetera, et cetera. So I just wanted to praise you guys for doing this incredible work at the Eurodollar University. Yeah, thank you, Alfonso. And I think one of our, you know, one of the things that we, me and I strive to do here, as you do as well, is that, look, we're not saying that we shouldn't change the euro dollar system because obviously it doesn't work. What we're actually saying is let's be realistic about it. It's not as easy as just saying, oh, we're going to go to a commodity-based system. You actually have to think about it long and hard and really think about the details behind it as we just did with, you know, the collateral story, treasuries, German scarcity, all these other things, because like it or not, that's the way the world actually works. And so what we're really trying to say here, as you are, is let's take a step back and think about how it actually works now before we start thinking about how we're going to change it to something better, because by and large, the people who are already talking about changing the system haven't really done their homework on how things work now. And I know it's easy to just say, well, screw it. It doesn't work. Let's just start over. You're just inviting disaster there. Because as you said, you know, the, the best solution here would be to find something similar that we might be able to overlay on top of what the existing architecture is to sort of minimize the transition disruption. So we can't just go to a commodity-based system because everybody hates America and treasuries are worthless in any long-run sense. That's just not a realistic step. I agree. Thank you guys for all the good work you're putting out there. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you can find Alfonso on Twitter at MacroAlf and again at Substack, the Macro Compass. I'm looking at a printout here of the articles that he's written, and it's an interactive bazaar of ideas. 54 comments for the most recent article, 127 for the one before that, 43, 76, Bond Market 101 Series Education. Fantastic 
Alfonso, thank you for teaching us all. Continued success and can't wait to talk to you again. Thanks, guys. Talk soon. Ciao.